Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the night before Thanksgiving in 1915, a group of 15 men boarded a bus in the parking lot of Atlanta's posh Piedmont Hotel. November 1915. The bus set out down rough roads, moving east. These men had been summoned by their new leader, William Joseph Simmons. Previously, Simmons had been a Methodist minister, but he'd recently set his ambitions on something new, something bigger. That's what tonight was about. As the men traveled beyond the Atlanta city limits, the bus rumbled through the darkened streets of the small town of Decatur. And after Decatur, their destination came into view. Stone Mountain. I've told you about Stone Mountain before. It's a single, oddly shaped mountain that rises up out of otherwise flat land about 15 miles east of Atlanta. A giant hunk of granite, sort of in the shape of a turtle shell. Back then it was privately owned, but today it's a state park. You can hike to the top in about an hour. When the men arrived at the base of Stone Mountain, it was late, around 10 p.m. As they shuffled off the bus, they were struck by a cold winter wind. Tall pine trees rose all around them. Total darkness. Being so far from Atlanta, there was no electricity out here. With flashlights in hand, they began their hike. Step by step, the train of men slowly made their way up the steep and rocky face of Stone Mountain few words were spoken. This was a solemn occasion. The men, now breathing heavily, had a general idea of their purpose that night. But only William Joseph Simmons knew the details. Earlier in the day, he'd prepared the scene. As the men approached the summit of the mountain, they could now look back over their shoulders to the west and barely make out the lights of downtown Atlanta in the distance. At Stone Mountain's highest point, the terrain flattens out. The top of Stone Mountain is strange. Not a lot of vegetation or soil, just a rough-hewn granite slab with various pockmarks and divots filled with water, worn down by the elements over thousands of years. It feels a bit alien or moon-like. There at the summit, the men huddled together. This is what they'd come for. Standing before them, barely visible on the backdrop of a black night sky was a large wooden cross. Next to it, a fluttering American flag. In front of the cross, a crudely built altar and an open Bible. William Joseph Simmons steps forward. He turns towards the band of men still catching their breaths. His eyes pan the group, now facing the cross and altar. He knows all of them to some degree. There really aren't any strangers here. In fact, he'd hand-selected them for this moment, knowing they'd give themselves fully to this reborn cause. 
Some of the gathered men were friends of Simmons, but others he'd chosen based off their involvement in a certain lynching that had taken place a few months earlier. Ironically, these men who delivered death to Leo Frank had been chosen for this night to deliver life to something very dark. As a cold breeze swirled around the troop of men, Simmons looked at his watch. It was time. These are his words regarding that fateful night. Suddenly, I struck a match and lighted the cross. Everyone was amazed. And thus, that night at the midnight hour, while men braved the surging blasts of the wild, wintry mountain winds, bathed in the sacred glow of the fiery cross... The invisible empire was called from its slumber of half a century to take up a new task and fulfill a new mission for humanity's good. For miles around, a chilling spectacle could be seen glowing in the night sky. A cross, engulfed in flames, burning over the southern landscape. Burning over cotton fields once worked by enslaved men, and now burning over the homes of their barely free ancestors. Faces warmed by the orange glow of the burning cross, with the odor of kerosene thick in the air, the men dropped to their knees. William Simmons delivered the oath of allegiance. The coven of men raised their right hands and repeated his words, pledging their eternal loyalty to this new movement. And just like that, the Ku Klux Klan was reborn a revival of white-robed hate that would rage through the American consciousness for the next 100 years and beyond. You're listening to the series finale of Catlick, episode 22, A Careless Little Washing. You've made it to the end. Thanks for listening. Frank was lynched in August of 1915. In the following weeks, William Simmons had witnessed the outrage triggered by the Frank lynching. This was his opportunity. About two months after Frank's lynching, Simmons filed papers with the state of Georgia to recharter the Ku Klux Klan, designating himself as the Imperial Wizard. I found an interesting article from early November 1915 several weeks before anyone knew that the Klan was being reorganized in Atlanta. It comes from Walker County, Georgia, about 100 miles north of Atlanta. From the local paper there, front page headline. Mission of Ku Klux Klan not understood and misrepresented. In the article, the author goes off about how the KKK was this really noble organization back in the day and that their main focus was fighting off all the northern carpetbaggers who'd invaded the South. But then, this. 
Their mission was to uphold the Anglo-Saxon supremacy in the southern states, to preserve the purity and dignity of every southern home, and to relegate an inferior race to the place for which it was designed by nature. And just to make it crystal clear, when the writer says Anglo-Saxon supremacy, he means white supremacy. We don't know whether or not Simmons read this article, but he certainly knew the history of the Klan when he filed papers to resurrect it. Simmons longed for an America where white Protestant men ruled as unchallenged lords over the rest of society. The timing of Simmons' Thanksgiving Eve midnight cross-burning on Stone Mountain was also strategic. The movie Birth of a Nation was scheduled to debut in Atlanta about two weeks after that first ceremony. You'll remember from the last episode, Birth of a Nation was Hollywood's first epic blockbuster film. It debuted in theaters at the beginning of 1915, but didn't arrive in Atlanta until December of that same year. It was also unapologetically racist. Well, in the lead-up to the film, Simmons began aggressively recruiting members for his newly revived Ku Klux Klan, even taking out ads in local Atlanta papers. So when the film arrived on December the 6th, he was ready. On opening night, he and his fellow Klansmen donned white robes, mounted horses, and rode through the streets of downtown Atlanta until they reached the Atlanta Theater. When moviegoers began to arrive for the sold-out show, they were greeted by real-life Klansmen, dressed just like the ones in the movie. Though we'd be horrified to see KKK men demonstrating outside a theater today, it wasn't so back then. The Klansmen in the film were depicted as heroes, so today this would be like seeing a guy dressed like Spider-Man outside the premiere of a new Spider-Man movie. So what's the significance of all this? Well, according to author Steve Oney, amongst those earliest recruits for the renewed KKK were several of the Knights of Mary Fagan. It's true, some of the same men who participated in the lynching of Leo Frank were the founding members of the revived second version of the KKK. In the same way a greenhouse has all the right ingredients for growing healthy plants, Atlanta in the fall of 1915 had all the right ingredients for resurrecting a notorious hate group. Three ingredients in particular. A global force, a local force, and a triggering event. The global force was the nationwide release of Birth of a Nation. The film fetishized the Klansmen in the eyes of Southern viewers, portraying them as valiant heroes who rode through the countryside, dispensing justice along the way. The local force was Tom Watson. You'll remember that Tom Watson was the bitter old politician-turned-media pundit who ran his own newspaper called The Jeffersonian. After Governor Slayton commuted Frank's sentence from death to life in prison, Watson went off, week after week, stirring up hate for Leo Frank and Jews more broadly. In his weekly diatribes, Watson would often threaten a Klan rebirth. And finally, the triggering event. That would be the lynching of Leo Frank. The Frank trial sparked a renewed distrust of outsiders, of people who didn't fit the traditional Southern white Protestant mold. It seeded suspicion between poor working-class Southerners and the Northern Jewish transplants 
who many of them worked for. And when all that distrust and suspicion reached a tipping point, it spiraled into vigilantism, violence, and even murder. The day after the film opened, a film reviewer for the Atlanta Constitution could hardly contain himself. Here's an excerpt of what he wrote. Griffith's Birth of a Nation opened at the Atlanta Theater last night and was seen by one of the largest audiences that ever crowded through the doors. Never before, perhaps, has an Atlanta audience so freely given vent to its emotions and appreciation as last night. Spasmodic at first, the plaudits of the great spectacle at length became altogether unrestrained. The clapping of hands was not sufficient, and cheer after cheer burst forth. That's not all. He's just getting warmed up. It makes you laugh and moves you to hot tears unashamed. It makes you love and hate. It makes you forget decorum and forces a cry into your throat. Thus, over and over, does the picture grind and pound and pulverize your emotions. But then, towards the end, we get this. Again, I'm reading the review of Birth of a Nation from the Atlanta Constitution the day after it premiered in Atlanta. The picture is vindicated by historical facts and does not attempt to misinterpret or warp these facts for the purpose of dragging from their graves prejudices that had been dead long since. And that, my friends, is what I call a cat lick. What's a cat lick? I've been dying to tell you. A catlick is a colloquialism that refers to a quick, haphazard bath. It seems to have originated in England in the 17 or 1800s. But the best understanding of a catlick comes many years later, 1918 to be exact. In 1918, a children's author named Mary Graham Bonner wrote a weekly column that was syndicated in papers across America. It was called Daddy's Evening Fairy Tale. The column is sort of designed for dads, like a fairy tale or a fable that a dad could read to his kids at bedtime. Well, one of Mary Graham Bonner's evening fairy tales was titled A Cat Lick. It appeared in multiple papers during 1918, but it first appeared in a small Kansas newspaper called The Chase Register. The story is short. Remember, it's designed for children. And it features two characters that are both cats. Ms. Black Cat, and Ms. Gray Cat. The story begins on a sunny day when Miss Gray Cat notices Miss Black Cat scowling and looking very grumpy. They have a little conversation, and Miss Black Cat admits something is bothering her. Ms. Gray Cat asks why. Ms. Black Cat explains. Some children were playing on the porch this morning, and their mother called to them. She told them to get ready for breakfast and that they all needed to have a cat lick. Whatever did she mean? asks Gray Cat. Well, I found out from hearing the rest of the talk that she meant the children could go with very little washing until later on in the morning, before lunch, when they could have a good scrub after their playing. By cat lick, she meant a careless little washing. She didn't mean a good thorough one at all, and the very idea of calling that a cat lick. There you have it. A cat lick is a careless little washing. 
it's this idea that instead of doing a full wash, instead of doing the work of really scrubbing off the grime, you just give it a little lick like a cat and go on with your day. We tell ourselves we're clean, but we're really not. A careless little washing. And while this silly little story was probably designed to give parents a reason to lecture their kids about scrubbing properly in the bathtub, I've used it metaphorically for this podcast. When you study history, you see cat licks a lot. Really ugly moments in time, never properly addressed, never properly cleansed. Instead of recognizing the filth and doing the hard work of scrubbing it off, the guilty parties just give it a quick little lick, like a cat, and move on. Ta-da! All clean. But the problem is, the filth never went away. It just got passed off to the next generation. And as I researched this story over the course of five years, I saw all kinds of cat licks, both large and small. I saw lots of careless little washings applied to hugely filthy moments. Let me revisit that piece from earlier. The Review of Birth of a Nation. Listen closely. The picture is vindicated by historical facts and does not attempt to misinterpret or warp these facts for the purpose of dragging from their graves prejudices that have been dead long since. To give a little context here, the film had already been criticized for being racist and glamorizing the KKK. But this writer says, oh no, not at all. In fact, the South's race problems are long gone. His words, prejudices that have been dead long since. The implication here is that whatever racial prejudice that existed in the South, slavery, etc., it's long gone. After all, This is the new South. That whole issue with slavery and racism, it's a thing of the past. We're way better than that now. This is a classic cat lick, a careless little washing of something that's caked in filth. In December of 1915, when this movie review was written, Georgia's race troubles were alive and well. I mean, hell, we're just a couple years removed from three lynchings of black men up in Forsyth County, and we're just a couple of months removed from the vigilante lynching of a Jewish man in Marietta. Dead long since my ass. That's a cat lick, a careless little washing of something covered in the muck of hate bigotry, injustice, and racial terror. A cat lick is a casual glossing over of shameful moments. A cat lick is an incomplete reckoning with past injustices. A cat lick is a band-aid on a gaping wound, but still gushing blood. It's a careless little washing. They were happening then, and they're still happening today. In Catlick, I've told you four stories that played out over a 56-month period of time from 1911 through 1915. Some of them wrapped up nicely and some not so much. But I don't want to leave you hanging, so I want to revisit each story and bring some closure so far as it's possible. First, let's start with the Atlanta Ripper. 
Most who studied this string of murders agree that there likely was a single serial killer operating on the outskirts of Atlanta from 1911 to 1912 and possibly beyond. His pattern was consistent. He targeted mostly young, light-skinned African-American women. His modus operandi was to smash his victims in the head with a blunt object and then slash their throats with a knife. He then dragged their bodies to an isolated area, like a field or an abandoned lot, some bushes. Many of the murders occurred on or near train tracks. And finally, most of the killings occurred on Saturday nights. Between 1911 and 1912, the Ripper killed about 20 victims in and around Atlanta. But similar killings continued after that, including a couple in 1913 and 1914. Same for 1915. In August of that year, a young black woman was found murdered at the corner of Ponce de Leon and Penn Avenue. Headline. Ripper, busy again. Another Negro woman, victim of the slasher. Her name was Lucy Farr, and the Constitution noted that she'd been stabbed in the head. This happened just a day before Leo Frank was abducted, so in at least one newspaper I found, the breaking Leo Frank lynching headline appeared right next to a new Ripper headline. In the 1920s, there were a couple of similar killings and a few black men were arrested for those, though there was never any linkage to previous murders. The last Ripper headline we see appeared in 1924, 13 years after that first murder of Rosa Trice down in the neighborhood of Pittsburgh. This woman was 25 and her body was found near a rail line with a knife wound to her head on a Sunday morning. From the Constitution. The crime recalls the operations in and around Atlanta a number of years ago of a mysterious Jack the Ripper who was credited with more than a dozen murders. This was the last mention of a Ripper-type murder in the Atlanta newspapers. Theories about the Atlanta Ripper abound. I've posed the theory that Thomasville's wealthy businessman William H. Mitchell may have been the Atlanta Ripper. Detective William Burns, while working the Mary Fagan case, he suggested that Jim Conley was the Ripper, but he never really delivered much evidence. Ultimately, we don't know who killed all those young women and likely never will. There's no remaining forensic evidence to test, and anyone who might have known something has long since died. Despite the lingering mystery, there are still lessons to be learned. We know the newspapers didn't report on these murders all that much. I'd make the case that the primary reason for that is because the victims were black women. Black women were near the bottom of the social hierarchy of the South in the 1910s. There's no doubt that if the victims were white women, the outrage would have been off the charts and the media coverage would have followed. You only have to look at the never-ending stream of coverage that flowed out of the Mary Fagan murder trial for simple proof. Newspapers printed exhaustive exposés on Mary Fagan's life, pictures of her family. Photographers were dispatched to Marietta for her funeral. And yet, when you read articles on the Ripper murders, you're lucky if you even get a first and last name of the victim. They were utterly faceless to the general public. That the paper's white male reporters never even attempted to humanize these women is its own injustice. We'll also never know for sure whether or not the Atlanta police applied their best investigative efforts. 
but based off what we know, it looks doubtful. We know that Atlanta's black clergy pleaded with law enforcement to bolster their investigation and add black detectives to the police force. As far as we know, that never happened. Instead, the police began reflexively arresting whatever black man had recently been seen with the recently murdered woman. Quite a few men were hauled into jail with little to no evidence. Sadly, Atlanta has never righted these wrongs or even attempted to, which is interesting, especially when you compare it to the city's other historic tragedies. Even today, it's not difficult to find various markers and memorials to these tragic moments. Examples, the Battle of Atlanta, the city's subsequent burning, the lynching of Leo Frank, the civil rights struggle of the 1960s, the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the 1962 crash of Air France Flight 007, which killed lots of the city's wealthy elites, and the Olympic Park bombing. There's even a new memorial to the victims of the Atlanta child murders of the 1980s. But what you won't find is any mention of or memorial to the 20-plus women whose lives were snuffed out by a brutal killer in the 1910s. You won't find any kind of acknowledgement of how the city of Atlanta failed those black women so many years ago. It failed to protect them. It failed to honor them. It failed to bring their killer or killers to justice. It's like it never even happened. That's not even a careless little washing. A Catholic implies some level of effort. This was just a casual moving on. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Our next story uncovered the racial terror of Forsyth County in 1912. You'll remember that a white woman named May Crow was violently assaulted on a dirt road as she was walking home one evening. She later died. Within days, a young black man by the name of Rob Edwards was taken into custody by the local sheriff. However, a lynch mob overpowered law enforcement, broke into the county jail, extracted Rob Edwards, and lynched him on the coming town square. Days later, several other young black men were arrested, and two of them, Oscar Daniel and Ernest Knox, were later found guilty in a day-long trial that produced little to no evidence against them. Judge Newt Morris sentenced the two teenagers to hang in a private affair, but after the locals tore down a wooden barrier, the execution went on as planned, as several thousand townspeople looked on and cheered. Of course, what happened after was just as sinister. 
as local bands of night riders systematically harassed and terrorized the remaining African Americans of Forsyth County. Under nonstop threats of violence, every single black family eventually fled the county until Forsyth County was virtually all white. The belongings of these black families were destroyed and their land was quietly deeded over to whites in the years that followed. Most tragically, this was all sanctioned by Georgia law and a wink down at the courthouse. No restitution was ever paid for the illegal land seizures and not a single night rider was ever arrested for their acts of terrorism against the black residents of Forsyth County. Since releasing this podcast, I've heard from several of my black friends and others who grew up in and around Atlanta. Virtually all of them were taught, even as children, never to go to Forsyth County, especially after dark. Its reputation as the most racist county in Georgia persisted well into the 90s and even the early 2000s. But what about today? Has Forsyth County changed its ways? Has it shaken off the demons of its past? Well, sort of, but more so by coincidence than intentional choice. In the last 20 years, the population of Forsyth County has exploded. In the 80s, the whole population of the county was 35,000. Today, that number is around 250,000. Just a massive, massive growth. Forsyth County today is filled with thriving businesses, sprawling neighborhoods. The shores of its Lake Lanier are lined with multi-million dollar homes. Forsyth County has Chick-fil-A's and movie theaters, craft breweries, and even a Mercedes-Benz dealership, for crying out loud. What's even more surprising is that Forsyth County is now ranked as the wealthiest county in all of Georgia, with a six-figure median household income that's almost double the state average. Needless to say, it's no longer the sleepy farming community it once was. It's true. Forsyth County has come a long way. You'd never have known that just over 100 years ago, the locals were lynching black men and riddling their bodies with bullets on the town square. In the 2010 census, there were about 5,000 black people living in Forsyth County. Though it's still a very small percentage, it's a big improvement. Do I think that old racist contingent is still around? Yeah, I do. I just think their presence isn't felt much anymore. It's been swallowed up by all the growth, all the newcomers. I suspect the vast majority of those who've moved to Forsyth County in the last 20 years have no idea about the county's past. They just moved there because they thought it was a nice place to live. After reading about all the terrible things that happened in Forsyth County, it left quite an impression on me. In my mind, it was a scary place, this like nest of snarling, snaggletoothed hillbilly racists. But I needed to see for myself. That wasn't fair, obviously. So I took a day trip. After making the 45-minute drive north, I arrived in Forsyth County. My first stop was at a local grocery store outside the city of Cumming. I'm not making this up, but the first thing I saw when I walked in was a display advertising white flesh peaches. White flesh peaches. A bit odd for the name, but whatever. I shopped for a while observing as I walked. It was all very suburban, 
very normal, very mundane. There was a sign on the wall introducing the store manager. It included his name beneath the smiling photograph of a black man. But then when I checked out, I noticed this guy in front of me in a wheelchair. He looked a little rougher around the edges than everyone else I saw. His forearm was covered in tattoos. I leaned in to get a better look, but hoping he wouldn't notice. The tattoos included a huge Confederate flag, a snake with big fangs, and the phrase, don't tread on me. Now, I tried hard not to judge people, but I definitely wondered if this guy was like original Forsyth County. I wondered if he heard stories growing up. I wondered what he thought about all the changes, about all the newcomers. My next stop, the infamous Cumming Town Square. Driving into downtown Cumming, it pretty much looks like any other little town square in the South. There's an Italian place, a burger joint, what looks like a slightly bougie cigar shop. I stop at a red light and look over. I see a black guy. Mid-30s, behind the wheel of a Mazda, looking at his phone. I wonder if he has any idea about what happened here. Next, I find a parking spot, get out of my car, and begin my little walk around the town square. Everything is nice, tidy, feels very new. It's actually kind of odd how nothing looks old on the coming town square. The old coming courthouse is long gone. They built a brand new one in 2002, an impressive, pretty brick building with white columns surrounded by a manicured lawn and clusters of pink knockout roses. The county jail is across the street. All the street lamps have these banners on them. Each one has a picture of an American flag and the phrase, Welcome to Coming, established 1835. Just outside the courthouse is this towering bronze statue of an aged white man in a three-piece suit. It's big. I'm over six feet tall, and this statue is at least twice my height, maybe more. This is obviously one of the godfathers of Forsyth County. The bearded figure holds a cane in his left hand and an open book in the other. Carved in granite, the man's name, Hiram Parks Bell, 1827 to 1907, attorney and statesman. A little research on Bell reveals that he was at one time a U.S. congressman, a slaveholder, and a raging, outspoken white supremacist. This is but one memorial on the coming town square. There are others. There's another oversized statue of John Forsyth, the eponymous icon who would later become governor of Georgia. Like Hiram Parks Bell, he also owned people. There's also a historical marker for Colonel William Cumming, the town's namesake who died in 1863. Not sure if he had slaves, but I have a hunch. Then there's a tall marble monument to all those from Forsyth County who died while serving their country. But just a few blocks from the square near the Cumming police station, there's a much larger war memorial, an entire plaza, really. Lining this plaza are individual stone monuments, one for each major U.S. conflict. The Civil War, World War I, World War II, Vietnam, so on. Listed on each monument are the individual names of the men who died on the battlefield. However, the largest and most imposing monument on the Cumming Town Square is that of Lady Justice, 
a soaring bronze statue situated right in front of the county's main judicial building. Lady Justice is a timeless icon that symbolizes the rule of law. She's blindfolded. In one hand, she holds a sword. In the other, the scales of justice. Beneath her feet, a book and a snake. A nearby plaque explains the symbolism. The scales of justice in her left hand represent the impartiality with which justice is served, while the sword in her right hand signifies the power that is held by those making decisions. Lady Justice's eyes are blindfolded to express the court's devotion to the objective truth. Draped in flowing robes, Lady Justice symbolizes the fair and equal administration of the law without corruption, avarice, prejudice, or favor. Dedicated, 2015. Those who erected this monument definitely want you to know that here in Forsyth County, we believe in the, quote, fair and equal administration of the law without corruption, avarice, prejudice, or favor, end quote. Sort of feels like a careless little washing. And despite all the oversized monuments and plaques scattered about, I can't help but notice not a single mention of Rob Edwards, Oscar Daniel, or Ernest Knox. Not a single mention of the 1,098 Forsyth County residents who were made refugees by local terrorists. We know it happened. Hell, an entire book was written about it. Yet still, looking around, it's like they never existed. Since releasing this podcast, I've spoken with several people who grew up in Forsyth County, and they pretty much all have told me the same thing. BT, growing up here, listen, we were told to never bring it up. It was just never talked about, and people wanted to keep it that way. Denial. Ironically, a big new fancy mixed-use development recently opened in Forsyth County. You know, shops, breweries, a food hall. The name of the entire development is called Halcyon. I had to look that word up too. The word Halcyon is an adjective defined as denoting a period of time in the past that was idyllically happy and peaceful. It's so ironic, it's almost cruel. Now, I'm an outsider, but it sure does look like Forsyth County is embarrassed by its past. As of this recording, there's no official acknowledgement of the county's dark history. No attempt at even a symbolic amends. And it's certainly not from lack of time or resources. In the last 20 years, county leaders have been very busy building new streets, neighborhoods, courthouses, high schools. But no time for the past, I suppose. I wouldn't call this a careless little washing as much as I'd call it a calculated forgetting. It's kind of like a child who spills a bowl of chocolate pudding on his mom's white couch and then tries to evade punishment simply by ignoring the heaping pile of brown goo now oozing into the seat cushions. Did you spill pudding on the couch? Mom asks. What? The child mutters as he casually slips out of the room. For weeks, months, years, the pudding sits and festers. It attracts ants. It stinks. It hardens into a pile of sticky black sludge. There is a specific set of actions needed to clean up a mess like this, but denial is never one of those actions. 
You can never erase an ugly moment by refusing to acknowledge it. You can never fix something broken by setting it on the shelf. And you can never heal something wounded by dismissing the pain. Never. I'm reminded of a quote by Brian Stevenson, the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. Quote, To overcome racial inequality, we must confront our history. End quote. My hope is that one day Forsyth County will confront its history, not because of Patrick Phillips' book or because of some random podcast, but because it's the right thing to do. Thankfully, since releasing Catlick, I've been connected to a small group of Forsyth County residents who've been quietly working to find a way to honor the victims of the racial terror of 1912. I desperately hope county officials will hear what they have to say. Because if they do, then maybe one day, when school children incoming take a field trip to the county courthouse and gaze up at Lady Justice towering over them, they might also get to learn of the tragic fates of Rob Edwards, Oscar Daniel, Ernest Knox, and all those other victims of homegrown Georgia-style terrorism. Maybe then, when the full story is told of Forsyth County's justice and injustice, those kids can help ensure that nothing like that ever happens again. Next, the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill Strike of 1914 and 15. You'll remember that in May of 1914, a couple hundred workers at Atlanta's massive Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill walked off the job in what was a rare Southern labor strike. Labor groups in the North sent down their best organizers, but they were stifled by Oscar Elsis, the factory's newly minted president who used an army of spies to stay ahead of the strikers and seed dissension amongst their leaders. The strike enjoyed some initial success and momentum, but it eventually petered out. Here's what happened in the aftermath. Do you remember Harry Preston? He was Oscar Elsis's super spy that infiltrated both the local union and the men in religion forward movement. While Preston left the strike in late 1914 after being outed as a spy, he wasn't gone for long. He was back in Atlanta just two years later as a local manager for his spy agency employer, the Railway Audit and Inspection Company. In the following years, he supplied more spies to Oscar Elsis, and the two old pals exchanged letters often. Preston was eventually promoted to vice president over the company's southern region. In 1939, Harry Preston passed away at his home just down the street from the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill. Next, Ola Delight Smith. You'll remember her as the feisty union leader who used her camera to document the mill management's bad behavior. After a nasty divorce trial initiated by her husband, Ola left Atlanta in 1914, never to return. Well, as it turns out, Ola's husband, Edgar, had a little extra help during the divorce trial. In his book about the strike, historian Clifford Kuhn says that, quote, company officials and attorneys openly collaborated with Smith's husband during the divorce trial, end quote. Honestly, this feels like a total Oscar Elsis move. 
Divorce was a scarlet letter back then, and Elsis knew that if he could expedite Ola's divorce process, her reputation would be shot and she'd have to leave town. Throughout this whole fiasco, Oscar Elsis had lots of shady moments, but this one might be the shadiest of them all. Despite her public shaming, Ola Delight Smith was a fighter, and needless to say, she quickly rebounded. After a couple of moves and a remarriage, she eventually landed in Portland, Oregon. There, she resumed her work as a telegrapher and ardent labor activist until she retired at the age of 70. She became somewhat of an icon in Oregon, and towards the end of her life, the Portland Central Labor Council recognized her 50 years of work in the labor movement. Around that same time, she wrote in the Journal of Labor. Reflecting on her time as an activist, she pointed back to her work at the Fulton Cotton Mill Strike in Atlanta as a turning point in her career. Ola Delight Smith died in Portland in 1958. She was 78 years old. Next, Oscar Elsis, son of the Mills founder. Oscar took over for his dad in January of 1914, and within a few months, he was tangled up in an ugly labor strike, the biggest ordeal of his whole career. Sadly, the Fulton Cotton Mill strike of 1914 and 15 is a classic case of the bad guy winning. Through his relentless strategy of covert surveillance, a nasty disinformation campaign, and calling in favors from influential friends, Oscar Elsis successfully snuffed out efforts to unionize his cotton mill. In the years following the strike, Oscar Elsis maintained a smaller network of informants embedded within the mill's operations. He also gained the reputation as a strike-breaking guru, with other mill owners calling on him often for advice. Tragically, in 1924, just 10 years after taking over as president, Oscar Elsis died suddenly of unknown causes. He was only 53 years old. Most days I think of Oscar Elsis as I've portrayed him in this podcast, as a bitter, conniving, insecure man with little regard for those he employed and a tendency to look out for only his interests. Based off the evidence available, and there's a lot, I believe this is a historically accurate depiction of his life as a businessman. However, on my kinder, less angry days, I have a tiny bit of sympathy for Oscar Elsis. Just a little. At 43 years old, he took over the reins to a massive corporation started by his legendary father, and within months, he was besieged by a labor strike. We know that his father, Jacob, still came into the office every day then, so I'm sure Oscar felt the pressure to impress Daddy by proving that he could deal with the strike on his own. And to make matters worse, I think Oscar Elsis felt increasingly persecuted by his workers and the city of Atlanta more broadly because of his Jewish faith. One federal investigator of the Fulton situation wrote in his report that Oscar Elsis, quote, suffered from an acute sense of paranoia, end quote. And I think his following of the Leo Frank trial fueled that paranoia, causing him to act even more viciously towards those he felt were out to get him. I drive or walk by the Elsis family mausoleum at least once per week. 
the family patriarch, Jacob, purchased one of the premier plots in Oakland Cemetery back in the 1800s. He and his family are buried there in the Jewish section. The Elsis family mausoleum sits on one of the highest points of land in the cemetery, and it looks down over Memorial Drive, a four-lane road that's as busy today as it was back then. You can't drive down Memorial Drive today without noticing the impressive gray mausoleum with the name Elsis inscribed at the top. And behind it, about half a mile, you can see the twin smokestacks of the former Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill rising over Cabbage Town. After Oscar Elsis died in 1924, other generations of the Elsis family took over the mill. Some decent efforts were made over the years to improve conditions for the workers and in the mill village, but things were never great. Drama was always around the corner. There was another ugly strike in the 1930s. In the 1940s, the mill manufactured products for the war effort. In the 1950s, the Elsis family sold a majority stake in the company to outside investors. The last Elsis family member involved with the mill moved on in the 1960s, and in the 1970s, the mill closed for good. What eventually did end the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill wasn't union-friendly labor activists, but the rise of globalization and American manufacturing's inability to compete with textile operations in Asia. When the mill closed, it plunged Cabbage Town and its residents into economic misery. Locals struggled to find other jobs because millwork was all many of them had ever known. In the 1980s, gentrification slowly crept in as artists migrated into Cabbage Town and developers began flipping the quaint shotgun houses. And then in the early 2000s, the old cotton mill was finally converted into residential lofts, which is the place I call home today. Sadly, today, there really aren't that many original Cabbage Towners left. Most of them have moved out of the neighborhood onto other places. However, every year in June, Cabbage Town hosts a homecoming, and lots of them come back and visit, tell old stories. It's pretty cool. The Cabbage Town of today is a tiny little enclave of quirk and creativity. In Cabbage Town, people light candles on their porches at night for no reason. In Cabbage Town, people put David Hasselhoff cutouts in their windows. In Cabbage Town, people still nail homemade yard signs to telephone poles. In Cabbage Town, if you've got some art, you can just put it out there. From big murals to poems taped to concrete walls to pop-up spray paint memorials in Krog Tunnel. In Cabbage Town, we have a tiny local grocery store and burger joint that's been in business since the 1920s. And in Cabbage Town, it's still not uncommon to hear a group of guys at night gathered around a little campfire on an empty lot on Carroll Street, strumming banjos and guitars and laughing late into the night, just as their Appalachian forebears did many years before. In the final chapter of his book, Clifford Kuhn summarizes the legacy of the strike so well. At its core, this is what the Fulton strike signified for many of those who took part. A rare opportunity for people who were often despised and humiliated, marginalized, powerless, and subservient, to retaliate, to assert their dignity 
independence, and self-respect, to challenge usual relationships of power, to claim their place, however precariously, in the volatile New South. In addition to everything else the Fulton strike influenced and revealed, this disruption of business as usual meant a great deal. And our final story. The murder of little Mary Fagan, followed by the trial and illegal lynching of Leo Frank. Of the four stories I covered in Catholic, there's no doubt that this one is the most well-known. I could make the case that the Frank trial is the most significant trial in the history of the American legal system. Most people know it for the salacious made-for-TV details, but the real significance lies in the timeless American tensions that it exposed. In terms of race, the trial pitted a black man, Jim Conley, against a white man, Leo Frank. In terms of religion, it pitted a predominantly Christian Atlanta against the city's much smaller Jewish community. In terms of geography, it pitted the American South, still kind of raw from the Civil War, against a northern transplant, Leo Frank, who came to embody the much maligned notion of a Yankee carpetbagger. In terms of socioeconomics, the trial pitted the interests of poor Southern crackers, working-class whites who sweated their lives away in Southern factories, against the wealthy and educated factory superintendent. In regards to journalism, the trial exposed the dark side of the First Amendment that newspapers and rogue journalists with their own agendas can manipulate public sentiment, stoke deep division, and even influence legal outcomes. And in terms of just pure mystery and made-for-TV drama, the Frank case is unrivaled. The trial produced a mountain of evidence and first-person reports, and even now, a hundred-plus years later, people are still litigating the guilt or innocence of Leo Frank. Over the years, there have been dozens of books, movies, documentaries written about the Frank case, There's even a Broadway musical about it called Parade. Just Google Leo Frank and you'll find endless rabbit trails of conspiracy theories, propaganda, and even entire websites devoted to defending his guilt or innocence. I'll give you my final thoughts on Frank's guilt or innocence, but first I want to wrap up the story and let you know what happened with all the other main players. Let's start with Leo Frank's wife, Lucille. Lucille Frank was understandably devastated by the news of her husband's murder. The day after, she boarded a train accompanied by her husband's body and rode north to Brooklyn, Leo Frank's hometown. Just days later, he was laid to rest in Mount Carmel Cemetery in Queens. Leo Frank's grave marker only said this. Leo Max Frank, beloved husband, April 17th, 1884 to August 17th, 1915. Semper idem. Semper idem is a Latin phrase that translates as always the same. While we don't know for sure, it's believed that this was a reference to anti-Semitism, a dark cultural force that has spanned continents and millennia and ultimately took her husband's life. There's this really heartbreaking photo of Lucille that was taken after the funeral. In it, she's 
coming out of the synagogue, walking down steps. She's dressed in all black and doubled over in grief. There's two men, one on each side, both holding her up. In the years that followed, Lucille Frank remained in Atlanta and stayed involved in the Jewish community. She never remarried and always defended her husband's innocence. Lucille passed away from heart disease in 1957 at the age of 69. But before she died, she prepared a last will and testament. In it, she gave specific instructions that upon her death, she was to be cremated and have her ashes scattered, not in New York, but in Georgia. While she was cremated, it wasn't until several years later that a kind of a random nephew scattered her ashes in the Jewish section of Oakland Cemetery between the graves of her mother and father. Some have pointed to this as a very subtle indicator of Frank's guilt. They say that if Lucille Frank truly loved her husband, then why wouldn't she choose to be buried next to him in New York? This anti-Frank crowd claims that Lucille knew Leo was cheating on her with young girls at the factory and secretly harbored a bitterness towards him that she was only able to express, very subtly, after her death. I don't really buy that, but that's what some people believe. Next, let's talk about the legal men involved with the Frank trial. First, solicitor Hugh Dorsey. You'll remember that he was the sharp-tongued lead prosecutor instrumental in securing the guilty verdict. During and after the trial, many believed that Hugh Dorsey had much bigger political aspirations and that he was using the Frank trial to advance his career, knowing that if he secured a guilty verdict, he'd be a state hero. And as it turns out, that's exactly what happened. In 1916, the citizens of Georgia elected their hero, Hugh Dorsey, as their new governor. And a couple years later, he was reelected to serve a second term. When his two terms were up, he served as a local judge. And when he died in 1948, he received a front-page obituary in the Atlanta Constitution. Even then, 33 years after the fact, Dorsey was praised as the man who put Leo Frank behind bars. In typical yet tragic political fashion, one man's demise became another man's path to political stardom. Now, one additional fact about Hugh Dorsey is that after completing his two terms as Georgia governor, he ran for U.S. Senate. However, he lost, defeated by another character in our story, Tom Watson. You'll remember Tom Watson as the angry and racist political pundit who used his newspaper to broadcast hate towards Leo Frank and other minority groups. Well, like Hugh Dorsey, Tom Watson also rode the fame he gained from the Frank drama to one of the highest tiers of American politics, the U.S. Senate. However, his term was cut short when he died from a brain aneurysm in 1922. He was 66 years old. Side note here, for years, there was a 12-foot-tall statue of Tom Watson, a memorial to his legacy, sitting near the steps of the state capitol building in Atlanta. Inscribed in stone beneath his feet, these glowing words. A champion of right who never faltered in the cause. Yeah, right. 
In 2013, the governor of Georgia had the statue relocated to a less prominent location across the street from the Capitol building. Do you know what they call the moving of a statue of a brazen, notorious, loudmouth racist from a place of high prominence to a place of slightly less prominence? You guessed it. A careless little washing. Hey, Catholic fans, this is Brett Harmon, BT's husband and the Catholic store manager. You've shown our podcast a lot of love, and now we want to do the same for you. From now until April 3rd, we're offering you 25% off plus free shipping on all Catholic merchandise. Just enter the code FINISHLINE, all one word, at checkout. We've got t-shirts, prints, stickers, and more. Stuff even the Catholic haters would love. Act quick so you won't miss our biggest sell ever. Go to Catholic.com, use the code FINISHLINE for 25% off and free shipping by April 3rd. That's Finish Line, all one word. And now, back to the show. Next, let's talk about Governor John Slayton. He was the one who, in the final hour, spared Leo Frank's life by reducing his sentence from death to life in prison. This decision, of course, was highly unpopular and made him one of the most hated men in all of Georgia. I told you that after his term as governor expired, he and his wife traveled around the country opting to stay as far away from Atlanta as possible. Well, about a year after that, they left the country, moving to Romania for a while to do some work for the Red Cross. After being gone for nearly a decade, the Slaytons finally returned to Georgia, and John quietly resumed a private law practice. In 1955, John Slayton passed away at the ripe old age of 89. A writer for the Constitution eulogized him with these words. A giant of his day, it was one of destiny's mocking ironies that his great integrity should have cost him his public life. A couple years after his death, the state erected a memorial to John Slayton inside the Capitol building. You got that one right. Good job, Georgia. Then there's William Smith. You'll remember him as Jim Conley's personal attorney during the Frank trial. However, about a year after the trial, he shocked everyone when he announced that he'd come to believe that Jim Conley was the actual killer and that Leah Frank was, therefore, innocent. Well, William Smith maintained this belief for the rest of his life. It's reported that decades later, Smith still had an obsession with the case and would be seen poring over trial evidence even as an old man. In interviews, his son claimed that his father carried a crushing guilt over his role in Leo Frank's wrongful conviction. In 1949, William Smith was suffering greatly from Lou Gehrig's disease and on the verge of death. On his final day of life, lying underneath an oxygen tent and barely able to speak, William Smith wrote a series of handwritten final messages to his son who was sitting by his side. One of those messages, crudely written in all capital letters, simply said this. In articles of death, I believe in the innocence and good character of Leo M. Frank. William Smith's belief in Leo Frank's innocence was so important that he made it a priority to clearly state his belief 
one final time before he took his final breath. Next, let's talk about the Jim Conley. Conley, of course, was the African-American sweeper at the National Pencil Factory who factored heavily into Leo Frank's trial. Jim Conley was the prosecution's star witness, and he claimed that Leo Frank killed Mary Fagan, then bribed him to dispose of the body in the basement furnace. Leo Frank's legal team maintained that Jim Conley was the lone killer of Mary Fagan and that prosecutor Hugh Dorsey had conspired with him to pin it on Leo Frank. Jim Conley was sentenced to a year on the chain game for his involvement as a supposed accomplice of Leo Frank's. But he was set free even before Frank was lynched. In the years following the Frank fiasco, Jim Conley had lots of run-ins with the law. Having become somewhat of a celebrity, the Atlanta newspapers covered each and every slip-up. His rap sheet was long. Public drunkenness, gambling, robbery, vagrancy, and multiple occasions of bride-beating. That's what we would call today domestic violence. In 1919, Jim Conley broke into a drugstore in the middle of the night and was shot in the chest by the owner. After recovering at Grady Hospital, he went on trial for the attempted burglary. He was found guilty and sentenced to 20 years. However, when the sentence was read, Conley chuckled loudly. Folks speculated that he laughed because he knew he could get a pardon from the governor, his old friend, Hugh Dorsey. We're not sure if he ever got that pardon, but Jim Conley was back on the streets years later, still getting into trouble. Several of his acquaintances during that time reported that whenever the Mary Fagan situation was brought up, Conley always denied it, even amongst friends. In 1941, Jim Conley appeared in an Atlanta courtroom on charges of gambling and drunkenness. But after that, he was never heard from again. No one knows when or where he died. He simply vanished. I mentioned one deathbed moment earlier, but there's another one. In the last episode, I hinted at a deathbed confession from a quiet and obscure witness from the Leo Frank trial. If you remember, there were more than 200 witnesses during the trial, so there were a lot. Well, I told you back in episode 16 of a 14-year-old office boy who worked with Frank at the National Pencil Company. Here's what I told you back then. Alonzo Mann had worked at the factory on that Saturday and noticed nothing out of the ordinary. However, in the course of his testimony, Alonzo Mann came across timid and unusually nervous. The press corps picked up on this. One writer for the journal wrote that Alonzo Mann was, quote, frightened by his experience in court, and the stenographer had difficulty in hearing his answers, end quote. Though he only played a small role in the trial of Leo Frank, this won't be the last we hear of 14-year-old Alonzo Mann. Well, now I'm going to tell you the full story of the nervous boy on the witness stand. Alonzo Mann's story first came to light in March of 1982, first appearing in Nashville's main newspaper, The Tennessean. 
At the age of 83, Alonzo Mann looked nothing like the timid teenager who'd testified in the trial of the century 70 years earlier. By 1982, he was an old man. And it was precisely because of his age that he felt it was time to speak out. So what bombshell did he have to drop? Well, Alonzo Mann believed that Leo Frank was innocent and that Jim Conley was Mary Fagan's killer. Speaking to some reporters at the Tennessean, he told his story, a full accounting of what actually happened on that fateful day at the National Pencil Company, April 26th, 1913. Alonzo reported for work early that morning, then left around 11.30 to meet his mother to go watch the Confederate Memorial Day Parade. Around noon, he came back to the National Pencil Company building, entering the main lobby. However, he was stopped in his tracks at the sight of a tall black man standing in the lobby and cradling the limp and lifeless body of Mary Fagan. He recognized the man as Jim Conley. Alonzo said there was no blood, no rope, and that he couldn't really tell if the girl was dead or just unconscious. Frozen, he was now standing face-to-face with Jim Conley who locked eyes with him, leaned down, and said, If you ever mention this, I'll kill you. Terrified, the 14-year-old boy turned around, bolted out the front door, and sprinted home as fast as he could. When he got home, he was frantic, told his mom everything. His mom's response? Here's what she said, according to him. For God's sake, don't tell anybody else about this. Just stay out of it. And that, man said, is why he was so nervous on the witness stand during the trial. And it's why he didn't tell the full truth when he had the chance. He was just a kid following mom's orders. So why did Alonzo Mann, after nearly 70 years of silence, finally speak up? This, his words from the original article. Many times I wanted to get it out of my heart. I'm glad I told it all. I've been living with it for a long time. I feel a certain amount of freedom now, and I just hope it does some good. Alonzo Mann also said that he believed Conley had killed Mary Fagan simply for the money she was there to collect so that he could use it to go buy some beer. In the Tennessean's article, it was stressed that Alonzo Mann's testimony had come in the form of a sworn statement and that he'd passed a lie detector test. When this article came out in 1982, it created all kinds of buzz. Newspapers across the country reported on it. Even the New York Times ran with it, headlining a lofty declaration. After 69 years of silence, lynching victim is cleared. Now, to be fair, this new revelation wasn't exactly the bombshell the media portrayed it to be. It was significant in that Alonzo Mann provided the only eyewitness verification of Conley's involvement with the murder, at least at some level. However, it was not a bombshell in that during the trial, both the defense and the prosecution argued that Conley had in fact carried Mary Fagan's body. The difference was that the defense argued that Conley assaulted Mary and then transported her to the basement to kill her. 
and the prosecution argued that Frank killed Mary and then tasked Conley with disposing of the body, which would have required him to pass through the lobby with the body on his way to the basement. Either way, it shouldn't have been all that surprising for Conley to have been seen with the body in the lobby. In a lot of modern articles written about this case, the writers will treat the Salonzo man confession as a smoking gun that proves Conley's guilt and therefore exonerates Leo Frank. They all do this because they've not actually studied the case all that much. And I now understand why. The amount of information is completely overwhelming. I spent months going through this case, even reading a 700-page book on it, the one by Steve Oney, but I still don't think I covered it all. As another point of comparison, the trial transcripts alone are more than a million words. That's roughly 10 times as long as this entire podcast. Nevertheless, a couple years after the Alonzo Mann confession, some lawyers in Atlanta working with the Anti-Defamation League filed paperwork with the state of Georgia seeking a posthumous pardon for Leo Frank. While the first motion was denied, it came back up again in 1986, and this time, the Georgia Board of Pardons and Paroles granted the posthumous pardon. However, it didn't fully vindicate Frank or declare his innocence. It was more focused on the state's inability to protect Leo Frank at the time of his abduction. Personally, I've never come across a story quite like that of Leo Frank. The evidence and arguments on both sides can be really convincing. And amidst my research, I kind of wavered back and forth. One night, I'd come home from the office, eyes sore from a day of reading, and tell my husband I was convinced that Leo Frank was guilty. But the next day, I'd read something else and come home and tell him, nope, I think Jim Conley did it. I will say this. One of the two, either Jim Conley or Leo Frank, was a cunning and devious killer who deceived lots of really smart people. It had to be one of them. I personally lean towards the belief that Jim Conley murdered little Mary Fagan. His proven record of compulsive lying, crime, and repeated acts of violence towards women is a really bad look. Furthermore, I think all the William Smith stuff is pretty damning for Conley. As far as I can tell, William Smith was a pretty good guy. He was the rare white attorney who proudly defended poor black Southerners against injustice. That William Smith eventually came to believe in Conley's guilt is a pretty big deal. I also think Smith's exhaustive study of the murder notes and how they compared to Conley's other handwriting and language usage is pretty convincing. The legacy of the Leo Frank case really can't be understated. It was loosely responsible for the resurrection of the KKK. And on the flip side, it spawned the creation of the nation's most recognized Jewish advocacy group. The Anti-Defamation League was founded just a few months after Mary Fagan was killed, when it became apparent that anti-Semitic forces were targeting Leo Frank. More than a hundred years later, the ADL is still advocating, with the stated mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. Today, up in the town of Marietta, there's a historical marker on the spot where Leo Frank was lynched. Technically, 
it's across the street from where Frank was hanged because the actual spot is a Waffle House parking lot. Chalker. What was once rural farmland is now a bustling suburban thoroughfare surrounded by busy roads and tacky billboards. The marker gives a quick history of the Leo Frank story, and then it ends with this. Without addressing guilt or innocence, and in recognition of the state's failure to either protect Frank or bring his killers to justice, he was granted a posthumous pardon in 1986. Pure neutrality. Ultimately, we'll probably never know who killed 13-year-old Mary Fagan. It'll always be one of America's great murder mysteries. I suppose the debate will rage on when I am old and even long after I'm gone. I have no doubt that in the year 2100, journalists, podcasters will still be reviewing the case files and writing lengthy think pieces on Leo Frank's guilt or innocence. As a final PS on the Frank story, and because it is truly the case that never dies, there has been some fresh Leo Frank news as recently as 2019. In May of that year, Fulton County announced the creation of something called the Conviction Integrity Unit. It's basically a committee led by the Fulton County District Attorney tasked with re-examining old cases. This is sort of becoming a thing in lots of big cities as they've realized that a lot of innocent people were put behind bars or are still behind bars. So they're forming committees and taking the time to reevaluate some of those old convictions. It's a really noble cause, in my opinion. Well, when Fulton County launched their own version of this, they included this little bomb. One of the first cases up for review, the 104-year-old trial of Leo Frank. One of the driving forces behind the committee taking up the case was former Republican Georgia Governor Roy Barnes. He's a big believer in Frank's innocence. Interestingly, Mary Fagan's grandniece, Mary Fagan Keene, has weighed in. She actually wrote an entire book on the murder of her famous ancestor and runs the website littlemaryfagan.com. She's an ardent believer in Leo Frank's guilt and has been quoted in several stories about the case being reopened. Needless to say, she's not very happy. Despite her protests, the Conviction Integrity Unit is going to review all the old evidence, so far as it's possible, and then make a recommendation. This makes it possible that in the not-too-distant future, Leo Frank could be fully, and finally, exonerated. Catlick started way back in 2015 when I began investigating the history of Cabbage Town. That led me to discover the digitized files that came out of that old vault from the cotton mill. I was fascinated by the strike and the spies and the treachery of Oscar Elsis. From there, I went down a black hole of Atlanta history. One big story led to another until I uncovered four really big stories that all happened around the same time. While the drama was off the charts, I also noticed themes threaded throughout the stories that were bigger than the theatrical moments. The theme of justice and grave injustice, themes of race, class, and old wounds and geographical division. To me, the Catholic stories 
felt like a microcosm of America and of American history. Most people don't fully realize just how special and weird America is. For most of human history, individual nations evolved to form a common culture shared by all. Whether you are a Maasai warrior in the 3rd century, a Viking in the 8th century, or a citizen of the Ming dynasty in the 15th century, you most likely grew up with people who looked, talked, worked, and ate just like you. And honestly, it's easier for these types of cohesive cultures to maintain unity because everyone has so much in common. But America's not like that. We're a patchwork, a melting pot, a hodgepodge of all different cultures. We're a nation derived from indigenous originals, British sailors, Spanish explorers, African slaves, Irish refugees, Chinese immigrants, Haitian newcomers, Mexican dreamers, and hundreds more. And when you bring all these different groups together under one roof, there's going to be friction. This kind of diversity is difficult. And when you look at Atlanta during the era of Catholic, you see that tension a lot. Most of it came from either outright hate or just from one group of people assuming the worst of another group of people. And throughout Catholic, you saw how the media can inflame these groups against each other. I think the freedom of the press is one of America's most precious freedoms. But when that freedom is abused by bad actors who weaponize language to draw out the worst in people, really ugly things start to happen. In the very first episode, I told you I'd be addressing the question of whether or not America is the hero or the villain. We've looked at a lot of ugly American history in this series. Still, it's only a fraction of the bigger picture of American history. If you only looked at these four stories, yeah, you'd probably lean towards the villain side. And honestly, I've noticed that a lot of people do that. It's like all they see is America's legacy of oppressing marginalized groups and completely overlook the fact that today's American citizen has more freedom and opportunity than most people who've lived throughout human history. Of course, the opposing view is just as ugly. Those who think America can do no wrong. This crowd conveniently overlooks America's horrific history with Native American genocide, slavery, Jim Crow, Chinese internment camps, segregation, criminalizing of gay people, and a whole lot more. Both of these views are flawed, and the answer to the villain or hero question is, of course, both. America is both the villain and the hero. America's a mixed bag of atrocities and unprecedented freedoms, of zealous oppressors and liberating innovators, of broken systems that wound and time-tested systems that create ridiculous prosperity of outright denials of our past sins to careless little washings of them to tear-filled moments of redemption that, though rare, help us see what America could be. And like our nation, each of us carries the virtues of both the hero and the villain, simultaneously able to help our neighbor up while also capable of kicking him while he's down. Like countries, most people aren't 
all good or all bad. We're a mixture of both. The Atlanta of today is in some ways vastly different than the Atlanta of Catholic and in other ways really similar. We've survived World War I, World War II. We survived the civil rights era, which finally upended the South's backwards and brutal system of racial oppression. And today, there's signs of prosperity, at least for some, everywhere. Companies like Chick-fil-A, Home Depot, Delta rule the land. Our airport, busiest in the world. Hip-hop is king. We have a mayor named Keisha, for crying out loud. Tiny cottages in Cabbage Town now sell for more than half a million dollars. They recently changed a road name from Confederate Avenue to United Avenue. Some of the old churches around town have been converted to comedy clubs, and the behemoth manufacturing buildings like the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill now house industrial lofts. Hell, even Oscar Elsus's vault has had a modern makeover. Oh, it's still there. When they renovated the mill, they turned the old executive offices into the community gym. And so amidst all the treadmills and free weights is that old vault. And inside that vault, a tanning bed. Yep. Oscar Elsus's espionage war room now holds a lonely, busted tanning bed that no one ever uses. I'm sure he would be so proud. And sadly, Atlanta is still a very broken city in many ways. We have pockets of vast wealth and of unbelievable poverty. The social and economic divides between the city's white community, black community, are still too wide. There are still two Atlantas. From the Civil War to civil rights, Atlanta has come really, really far. However, the work is far from over. Last summer, I completely immersed myself in research for this podcast. I'd read so much, my mind was swirling. Lynchings, murders, hate, serial killers. It was all really dark. Kind of made me feel a bit depressed for a while. So on a Saturday afternoon, I went out to the community pool at my place in Cabbage Town. The developer here did one thing really, really well. And that's the pool. They built it right in the middle of the mill complex. And so rising up around it are industrial ruins. Tons of brick and rusted metal soar high into the air on two sides. In the summer, it's just like any other community pool. People tanning, a few people playing music, snacks, drinks, people flirting. Well, on this particular Saturday, they were hosting a pool party and a fundraiser. It was a Baywatch-themed party, and the host was a guy wearing a blonde wig. I think he was playing the part of Pamela Anderson. I know the guy that's a friend of mine. His name? Jake Elsis. Yep, he is one of those Elsises, the great-great-grandson of the original founder of the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill, Jacob Elsis. Jake moved in a few years before I did, and he's become an incredible advocate for the community. He's a really cool guy, super friendly, and he runs the little Cabbage Town Museum called The Patchworks. Well, later that afternoon, the excitement of the pool party died down, and everybody got more chill. I got out of my chair, 
jumped into the shallow end of the pool to cool off. My mind was still heavy with all the dark history of the stuff I'd been reading, so I just took a second to breathe. And then, standing there in cool, waist-deep water, underneath the burning southern sun, I looked around and had this little moment. There was a smiling black guy standing in the corner of the pool with two little brown-skinned daughters splashing and laughing all around him. And just a few feet away from that scene, there were some gays huddled together, two white guys and an Asian guy. At the other end of the pool, there were two kind of preppy-looking couples. The guys were wearing tortoise shell Ray-Bans, and the girls were drinking hard seltzers. Not far from them, there were some long-haired guys with these enormous things in their ears and a couple of highly tatted lady friends, PBRs for all. I glance back up at the row of loungers. I see my husband. He's laid out on a chair, reading a book, perfectly handsome, totally oblivious to the little surreal moment I'm having. It was only a snapshot in time, but in that moment, Atlanta looked perfect. America looked perfect. All different kinds of people gathered together, getting along, having drinks, quietly accepting each other just as they were while listening to music on land that used to make Confederate war machines amidst the ruins of a factory once teeming with labor spies. It all just struck me as such a beautiful scene. My friend Donnell was the first person to introduce me to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s principle of beloved community. I can't possibly fully do it justice here, and I'd strongly encourage you to Google the phrase beloved community sometime. But in a nutshell, it's this idea that communities will only thrive when we learn to accept our neighbors' differences and begin loving them with our charity, our resources, and most importantly, our votes. Black activist Bell Hooks describes it this way. Beloved community is formed not by the eradication of difference, but by its affirmation, by each of us claiming the identities and cultural legacies that shape who we are and how we live in the world. What I saw in the pool that day was just a frail little glimpse of Dr. King's vision of a beloved community. But a glimpse, nonetheless. It was a reminder that cities can change, people can change, and things can get better. And yet still, each of us is invited to play our own part in bringing that vision to full life. My name is B.T. Harmon, and my mission in life is to seed the thoughts of a healthy culture. My hope is that throughout this story, you caught a few of those seeds and that you'll scatter them on other soil. Thanks for listening to Catlick. May we not be people of careless little washings, but rather members of a beloved community with the humility to look hard at our past and the courage to start scrubbing.
You did it! You made it to the end of Catlick! 22 episodes! Way to go! Uh, Listen, thank you so much for joining me on this wild ride through Southern and American history. But don't leave! I'm about to tell you about the coolest new addition to The Vault. And if you live in Atlanta, plan on visiting Atlanta anytime, you're really gonna wanna hear about it. So don't leave. But first... Catlick would not have been possible without the 634 people who supported the Catlick Kickstarter. I call them the original believers. I've said it multiple times. I'm going to say it again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for believing in this project before anyone else. Without you, Catlick would not exist. And I'm so incredibly grateful. Also, I want to give a huge thanks to our associate creative directors, the Dr. Cheryl Groves, Chris and Brittany Clark, and Mr. Jonathan Drummond. Hey, if you liked Catlick, could you please do me a favor? Go right now, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Not just the star, but like write like a thing, a comment, something. Be honest. And if you're feeling extra Catlicky, you could even tag us on your Instagram story or feed. That would be cool. Additional thanks to Joe Bunting and his team over at The Right Practice, who offered their expert guidance on the Catlick story arc. Listen, if you're an aspiring writer, go check out all their amazing resources at therightpractice.com. That's right as in W-R-I-T-E. Also, don't forget, we've got a huge promo on Catlick merch happening right now at catlick.com. Just use promo code FINISHLINE. That promo code is all one word. Once again, finish line. And if you just can't get enough of that sweet Southern drawl, be sure to check out my other podcast, Blue Baby's Pink, a Southern coming out story in 44 episodes. I've told you before, it's really different from Catlick, but you still might like it. Check it out on your podcasting app or learn more at bluebabiespink.com. To keep up with what I'm doing or working on next, the best place to find me over on Instagram. My username, BT underscore Harmon. That's BT underscore Harmon, and Harmon is spelled with two A's. So get out of here with that MON stuff. I mentioned it earlier, but if you haven't subscribed to The Vault, it's not too late. It's actually the best time. It's loaded down already with hundreds of old photos from the Catholic story, vintage maps of Atlanta, a photo tour of Cabbage Town, six additional bonus episodes, and tons more. And I'm excited to announce a special vault bonus that I've kind of been keeping in the wings. It's the all-digital Locals Guide to the ATL. It'll be uploaded to the vault on April the 15th. After more than a decade in Atlanta, I've discovered the most amazing restaurants, secret bars, quirky shops, and hidden gems that the tourists never hear about. I've condensed my list down to the top 56. That's one hot spot for each week, sorry, each month covered in the Catholic story. So whether you're a local looking for new things to do, or visiting the city for just a day, my local's guide to ATL is perfect for you. The best news, it comes free with your one-time subscription to the Catholic Vault. Just go to catholic.com right now, click on Vault to get everything I just talked about. 
Malik was recorded in Atlanta's historic Cabbage Town neighborhood. Executive producer, Walnut Ridge Harmon. And yes, for those of you who don't know, that's my cat. It was a joke. <laughs> Original music and sound design by the unbelievably talented and wonderfully adaptable Duciel. Shalise, I love you. Thank you. You're the best. Cover art by the lovely and remarkable Atlanta illustrator, Rachel Eleanor. Rachel, you're awesome. Thanks again. Catlick store manager, my amazing husband, who you heard from earlier. His name is Brett Harmon. Catlick Instagram follower of the week. You know what? It's everybody. Everybody who follows the Catlick Instagram account, you make the list if you're still listening. Not the people who tuned out earlier. But if you're still here, then you're on there. You made the list. We do have, thankfully, one final Catlick Hater of the Week. Arguably the most liked segment of the Catholic Podcast. Today's Hater of the Week, Lorenzo Smitty, who has a gripe with the quote, 73 storylines that have yet to intersect in any sensible manner. Well, Lorenzo, history rarely resolves in a tidy little way. That's mostly just Hollywood. Nevertheless, I'm sending you all the love and I really appreciate you listening. For all the latest updates, next things with Catlick, be sure to visit catlick.com. Don't forget about that promo code. Get you big savings in the Catlick store. The code is finish line. And finally, Catlick is independently written and produced by me, B.T. Harmon. It has been my pleasure and I'm signing off. I'd like to remind you one final time to save old buildings build bike lanes, and vote for public transit. I'll see you, hmm, hopefully on Instagram. Hope so. Once again, thanks for listening to Catlick, the lost story of how spies, villains, and midnight vigilantes nearly destroyed the South's grandest city. 